Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and go to uh, Philippians chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there, it's page 980. This is our new sermon series. Uh, We're going to be, for the next seven weeks, I think it is, uh, we're going to be going through the book of Philippians, and uh, hopefully it's an encouragement to you. So I would encourage you to be reading through the uh, the text, uh, the, the book. Uh, some people, they often will read the same book over and over again, and uh, it's a good practice to have. And so Philippians would be a good book for you to do that with here. Let me give you a little bit of background before we uh, dive into the actual text of it. Um, if you want to know how the book was started, uh, you or excuse, how the book was started, how the church was started, the church at Philippi, when we say the book of Philippians, he's writing, the, the, Paul is the author, he's writing to the church that was in the city of Philippi, okay? That's why it's called the Philippians. Um, if you want to know how that church was started, you would go to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 is where we find the story of this. Uh, this is Paul's his missionary journey. It's the beginning of his second missions trip. Um, it's a fascinating story. They've just come off of a council that happened in chapter 15 of Acts. And, and parenthetically, I want you to say this. This is why the book of Acts is so important, or one of the reasons, is that we can trace where these churches started from um, by the book of Acts. So let me just encourage you, when you're reading Paul's epistles, like you know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you know, these type of books, let me encourage you to, to also always go back to the book of Acts and kind of see the backstory of this, okay? So like when you see uh, the first and second Thessalonians, if you happen to read those books, you go back and see, I think it's chapter 17, of, you see of, of, of Paul and Thessalonica, right? And you can kind of see the backstory, what was happening uh, and how those churches got started. This is the beauty of, of the book of Acts. So in chapter 15, there had this council that had just taken place, right? There was a big question because back in Acts 10, there was Peter going to a guy by the name of Cornelius. And Cornelius was a Gentile, and he says that he wants to become a Christian. And then there's this sign about this. And Peter is saying, wait a minute here, okay, the gospel really is going to the Gentiles here. The council in chapter 15, there was a, all these leaders, James was there, Peter was there, all these leaders come together in Jerusalem to debate something. They're debating, wait a minute here, we've got this Gentile population that wants to be followers of Christ, okay? And and how does this work? What are the requirements? Jews, they required circumcision. Do we require that of the Gentiles as well? And so there's this big debate that happens in chapter 15. It's a wonderful story to read about because you see the sense of unity that comes through this, right? You see a sense of unity that comes out of this, and there's some key understanding of what would happen. And actually, what we do today in our practice, a lot of it traces back to this council that happened. Uh, it's recorded in Acts chapter 15. But moving on, chapter 16, we see Paul, at the end of 15, Paul and Barnabas, they were partners together. They have split now into two different teams. They had a disagreement over whether John Mark should get accompany them once again. John had, had uh, John Mark had, had, had abandoned the trip, uh, the first trip, and Paul was like, hey, wait a minute here. I don't think we can you know, count on him. Barnabas, who was his cousin, says, yeah, no, I think we can count on it. So Barnabas and, and uh, John Mark, they go one way, and then, and then Paul and Silas and Timothy, they're going into uh, another direction. Now, here's the thing about the story. If you read this, it's fascinating. And due to time, I'll just summarize it here. 
here. But it's, it's fascinating. You can read all the details about Acts 16. You'll see that this is really interesting happens with Paul. He says, hey, we're going to go this direction. And the Spirit of God says, no, you're not. Okay? And he says, okay, we're going to go this direction. And the Spirit of God says, no, you're not. Okay? And, 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 and they're trying to figure out, okay, well, where are we supposed to go here? Paul then has this vision of this Macedonian man. And Macedonia was a, is a region there. And there's this, a man from this area. And he's saying, come, come to us. Paul takes it as a sign from the Lord. The rest of the people go with them. And so then they enter into Philippi there. And um, it's interesting that I put in the church email, right? Okay, I put in the church email. I don't know if you, you know, people caught it. I don't know if people read these things or not. But I put a trivia question in there, right? Okay, the trivia question was, how many people accompanied Paul to the city of Philippi? Anyone know? Anyone know? How many? Well, we have, we have Silas and we have Timothy and Luke, we have Luke. Okay, you say, well, wait a minute, I happen to be in Acts 16, I don't see it. Well, it's a famous we passage in the Acts. There's seven of them, or there's these we passages, I believe there's seven. There's, there's these passages where all of a sudden Luke is on the scene here, okay? So Luke is with Paul in the city of Philippi here. You know, there's a, they, they couldn't find, there was not enough people to have a synagogue. There wasn't enough believing Jewish men. Uh, you had to have at least 10 in the city to have a synagogue there. There wasn't enough, it, it appears. And so there was a group of ladies that were meeting down by the river on the Sabbath there, having their, 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 their worship, okay? Paul finds them. Lydia is the kind of the leader of this. She's a very wealthy woman. She becomes a follower of Christ. She converts and follows Christ. Christ, okay, and then and then she hosts the church in her house, and so then this is how the church of Philippi gets started with Lydia. While Paul is there, there's a lady, there's a there's a young girl that was demon possessed, and she's following them around, and she's yelling out, "This is the the true the true servants of the Most High," and everything, and there's following around. Now you would think by reading the text, you think, okay, all right, well that's fine. Well, Paul gets annoyed with this, and then finally he just casts the demon out. And he said, "Well, why did Paul get annoyed?" By that. Well, he got annoyed with it because not all endorsements are good endorsements, okay? You know, I mean, it wasn't a really good endorsement to have a demon-possessed person endorsing what your message was. And so Paul says, we can't have this anymore. He cast the demon out. Well, there's a group of people that were making a lot of money off this demon-possessed girl. And now that their income was dried up, they were very angry. So they, they, they stir up the magistrates and they cast Paul and Silas into uh, the, uh, the, uh, the jail there. And uh, they spend a the night in jail. Some of you remember the story. They singing hymns all night long. Angel of the Lord opens the gates to them. The jailer then thinks that they're all escaped, is about ready to kill himself. And Paul calls out and says, hey, we're all still here and so the guy comes in and says, okay, something is miraculous about this. What, what do I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, and follow him. They, they're saved. They, 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 they publicly identify with Christ in the waters of baptism there. And it's a wonderful thing. And then later on, the magistrates come back and they say, hey, okay, let him go. Paul says, no, no, you got to apologize. you got to apologize. Now, if you read this, and again, I know this isn't about the text, but since I brought it up, I'll, I'll, I'll explain that real quickly here. The reason why 
Paul does that is because if he doesn't have them do that, then that first church that's just starting in Philippi, they're always going to be under suspicion of being started in a wrong way or of a, or of a, of a weird sect, right? But when the magistrates have to apologize saying they were wrong, that protected that embryonic church that was just starting in, in Philippi. That's why Paul insisted on that. So anyway, so this is how this church gets started, right? Okay, Paul absolutely loved this church. Now, this is the reason why I'm telling the story is because as we look at this book, these four chapters in Philippians, we need to kind of understand the backstory. We need to understand the relationship that Paul had with these people. I mean, he had been in prison there. He, I mean, he'd, he'd done great works there, and there was people saved, and it was just a, it was a wonderful church that he absolutely loved. He loved this church. Now, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they apparently leave Luke uh, there at Philippi to kind of get the church going, and they move on with their next stop on their missionary trip, okay? And so that's kind of how the story of how this church gets started here. Later on, we're going to read again back in Acts. In chapter 28, we find out that Paul is in Rome, and then he is in, under house arrest, okay? Uh, later on, he gets arrested, and he's put under house arrest. There's actually in the Bible, in the New Testament, there's two imprisonments of Paul. Um, later on in Timothy, we're going to read about one. This is a far worse imprisonment. That is not the imprisonment here. This imprisonment that Paul is in in the end of 28 of Acts chapter 28 is when he's under house arrest and he's kind of awaiting trial. He could have visitors come to him. Um, it wasn't the greatest of situations, but it wasn't the worst either. It was in this spot, in this house arrest situation, that Paul picked up his pen grabbed some paper, and he wrote this letter that we have here. What you have opened in front of you is a copy of an ancient letter, an ancient letter that God has preserved for our benefit, and we get to study it, and we get to learn from it. What he's doing here is that the Philippian church, they have sent aid to Paul. They love Paul. They hear he's under house arrest. And so they say, we need to help Paul. So what they do is that they get together some offerings and probably some cookies and things like this. You know, none of that candy corn. But they sent this stuff to him to be an aid to him. And that's exactly what they, they sent to him. And they sent it by the man by the name of Epaphroditus, okay? So Epaphroditus, he's the messenger. And so he takes it. And there may have been other messengers, but he's the one that we know for sure. He takes this aid he takes this support to Paul. He finds him in Rome. He gives it to him. And then while he's there, Epaphroditus gets sick. He gets so sick that everyone thinks he's going to die. So he has to stay there for a long time. So he's there with Paul in Rome under house arrest. The Philippian church is waiting to hear back from Epaphroditus. They haven't really heard much, most likely, yet. And so this is what there's maybe some word has gotten back. We don't know. But all we know is the Epaphroditus, their messenger, hasn't been able to go back. And we read about this in the book. We're going to come to this where Paul talks about this in the book. Epaphroditus then spends the time with Paul. Eventually, he recovers. Eventually, he gets healthy. And Paul says this is an answer to his prayers. And so what he does then is he takes the letter, and he takes this, 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 this letter that he's written right here that we have for us, and he gives it to the Epaphroditus. He says, go back to the church. And what one of the functions that this book is, is it really is kind of a thank you note. It really is. It's a thank you note from Paul to the Philippian church, and we get to read it. We get to study it. We get to see what was, in, what, what, what was in Paul's heart. And here's the thing. Paul, being Paul, he couldn't be satisfied with just saying, 
thanks for the donuts and <laughs> sent it back. He had to have some pastoral admonitions in there and encouragements for the people that he loved so much. And this is, by all accounts, all scholars agree, this is one of the most warm letters that was ever written that we have, that we have access to by the hand of the Apostle Paul. It's a very warm letter that he's writing to the people he loves. And so I hope that as I have the opportunity to teach this to people I love, that we can learn uh, what God has for us. So what we're going to do today, we're going to look at chapter 1. Jason read the first uh, half of it to us. And then we're going to kind of look at the second half too as we go through this. But as we walk through this text, we're going to point out really three things today. We're going to point out, number one, Paul's prayer. We're going to talk about Paul's priority. And then we're going to talk about Paul's plea. Okay, his prayer, his priority, and his plea. That's how we're going to structure this first chapter. Let me pause, ask God's blessing. Now that we got the background, we understand what's going on here, then we're going to dive in here. But let me pray. Father, I do want to pray now that um, as I have the privilege of, of opening the Word of God here in this, this letter, I do pray that I would communicate in a way that is helpful to these people whom I love. Lord, this is a, an opportunity, a great privilege it is to stand every week and, and teach God's Word. I just pray that I'd be led by your Spirit, God. I, I, I want to be accurate with the text. Uh, when Paul wrote this, he was led by your Spirit to do so, and you had reasons for it. You had reasons for the words that he chose, and, and we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God, meaning that every word is inspired by you in the original, and we're so grateful for that. Now as we have translations and copies of that, Lord, we just pray that we would, we would discern it well and that I have the privilege of teaching it, that it would be accurate to what your word is. God, we don't want to mess with it. We don't want to inject our, our own uh, agendas on top of the text, Lord, but we want the text to inform how we should uh, interpret this and then, of course, apply it to our lives. So in order for that to happen, though, your spirit needs to do that. Your spirit needs to guide me. Your spirit needs to keep distractions away and engaging uh, 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 minds as we go through this text. We have an enemy, God, that would love for us to be scoffers and would love for us to be distracted and would love for us to, to waste the time here today. I pray that you would use your servants and your spirit uh, to, to keep that away and that we would uh, we'd benefit as a result of spending time together today. So we pause because we need you and we love you. And we're grateful for what you've done for us. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. All right. First of all, let's look at Paul's prayer. Okay, Paul's prayer. This is what we're going to look at, Paul's prayer. Uh, when we see here in verse 3, it says, I thank my God uh, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer uh, of mine for you, for all making my prayer with joy. See, here's what he's doing right from the beginning. This is pretty typical of Paul in his writings, that he will talk about his uh, prayers for the church that he's writing to. He was a person who prayed for his, uh, the people whom he loved and the churches there. There was times where he would talk about how he prayed with tears for people that he loved. It was heartbreak there. But here we have a different thing. We have, he had uh, uh, um, uh, joy in his prayer. Did I skip one there? Okay, joy. We had joy in his prayers, right? And, and we see this in the text there is that his prayer with joy. 
And when he thought of the, the, the Philippians, it was like joy came to his soul. There wasn't the tears. There wasn't the, the sorrow that maybe some other churches that had brought to his heart because of what they were going through. Uh, it, was, it was rather just joy that came in Paul's mind. It was almost like every time he thought of the Philippian church, like a smile would come across his face. I don't know if you've ever had a situation like that. and Maybe you've looked at a picture or you've looked at uh, a memento from a vacation or something like that, and you see something, and it just brings a smile as you, as you remember remember that, that situation. You remember what happened that day. Well, for Paul, every time he thought of the Philippian church, it was like joy. I mean, these are people that he felt very close to. One of the, the, the key markers, and if you look at verse 1 and see how he introduced himself, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, and he stops there and just continues on. His only description of himself there is servants of the Lord Jesus. Often, not all the time, but often when Paul, I I would say the vast majority of the time, if you were to do a study of all the times that Paul in his letters and when he started writing, he always included that he was an apostle. Uh, and the reason for that is he was reminding them of his authority because he usually was telling them of, hey, you got to tighten this up or, hey, you, you're not doing this right here or you got to change this. And so he would just remind them, listen, I'm an apostle of Christ. He didn't do it in a, a braggadocious way, but just a reminder, okay, I'm, I'm telling you this, this is my responsibility as an apostle to tell you these things, right, okay, to correct us. We don't have that here. We don't have that here because this is just his letters, thank you note that he's given to these people that he just really loves and he just cares and he's not even intending to really correct them in anything. He is going to get into that. I mean, his apostleship is going to come through in the writings, okay? But that's not the main intention. You see, when he was praying for these people, joy would fill his soul. And, you know, I, I think about that. I think about that. There are people in our lives that God has just put in our lives that just bring joy to us. And so the question is, is like, are you that person for somebody? Do you bring joy to people because of your relationship with them? You say, well, how does that look out? Well, let's look at the text and we can figure out if we're to some of those people or not. What was it about the Philippians that brought them joy, that brought Paul joy? Well, they were, I don't know if you see in the text there, but they were partners in the gospel. It says, because, verse 5, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. If you were to look that word up, it's a, the word behind it in the Greek language is called koinonia, which is what we get translated often fellowship or partnership, okay? We see this all the time. It's a very common New Testament word, particularly in Paul's writings, about this idea of what Christians should be. A, a, a fellowship together is more than just people who have something in common and they kind of like each other. No, this is like a, a deep connection. And for the Christian, that's Christ, okay? For the Christian, that's our fellowship. This is why we can go to different parts of the world and, and we, can, we can go to a church service with other believers and there's a connection there right away. I've, I've had this experience in, in many different countries that I've been able to, to, to travel to and be in different church services and I tell you, there's oftentimes I don't understand a word of what's being done and said in that, uh, 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 in that church service because they're, they're in their own language and they're worshiping Jesus. And, but there's a, there's a sense of a fellowship there. And that's one of the reasons why the table is so important is because you don't need words with the table. We worship at the table together here. And it's that sense of fellowship, that koinonia. In fact, he, Paul uses that word in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 about the table. This is what brought Paul joy. Is that when he had a partner in the gospel? That's what that's what that's what caused a smile to his face. That's what made the house arrest easier to bear, is because he knew that he had people. It wasn't so much the gift. Chapter four, he's going to say that. Chapter four, he's going to say it's not so much the gift, but it's the partnership that he has. 
In fact, that's what brings joy to the believer. Because so many times we feel alone. So many times we can just feel like we're the only ones. Or we're, or we're, or we're trying, I mean, you know, we just sang a song a few minutes ago, He Will Hold Me Fast, right? Uh, I think there's one of, the, uh, one of the first lines is, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. I don't know if you've ever felt that. I do. I have. You know, is it going to last? You know, I read about people who just, they go away. And they, they stop following. I don't want to be one of those people. But am I better than them? No. What keeps me going? Well, part of it is when I know that I have partners in the gospel. When I have people, is, is there anything that gives you more joy? That it, or let me say it this way. There are a few things that give us more joy than to know that we truly have someone that's our partner, that is someone who is for us, is with us, is going towards the same goals, is encouraging us. You know, a couple weeks ago, I was watching a Michigan football game or just part of it before I took kids to basketball, and then uh, one of our, our coaches, uh, well, I say our, sorry, okay, one of Michigan's coaches um, uh, had a, uh, you know, sorry, uh, you know, I, I'm a missionary to a foreign land, but anyway, um, <laughs> but, um, so, uh, but the point is, is that one of our, well, what, I did it again, one of the Michigan's coaches uh, had a medical emergency, it was a running back coach, Mike Hart, who used to play for Michigan. I watched him play, and he was this great running back. Um, he had a medical emergency. He just collapsed on the sidelines. And uh, it was a f- like first quarter of the game, and of course, no one knew what was going on. They carted him off and everything. It was, and it really, I could tell it really impacted the players, particularly the running backs. And we have two really good Michigan has two really good running backs uh, this year. And so it was, it was, I could tell it really affected them. They won yesterday's game, and afterwards they're interviewing. The run game was really well, and the coach was back coaching yesterday, and everything seems to be okay and all that stuff. In the interview at the end, this is what one of the players said, one of the running backs. He said, you know, Coach, coach Hart, he's, he's for us. He's with us. I will go to war for him. I'm so glad to have him back here. It makes all the difference in the world. You know, what was he saying? He, it was like, it was different than that. He said he knew he had someone as a partner in the game and it was coaching him and helping him. It made all the difference in the world, right? I mean, you think about it in life. You know, okay, you say football's not your thing. Okay, marriage, this is one of the reasons why marriage is so important, is that we have someone who loves us no matter what, someone who's patient with us. Us, someone who puts up with us and is kind, but yet will also push us to do what is right, okay? This is why marriage is so important. So we could go on and on about all the different examples here, but what brought Paul joy here, and when he was praying for these people, what brought a smile to his face, was that he had partners in the Philippian church. They were ones who were going to go to war for him. And so my question is, is like, you know, do, do you have people like that in your life? And the point is, our church should be that. We need to be that for each other. We have to be that for each other. This is why we're constantly trying to find ways to get you to mix up with small groups or come together for hymn sing or we have sing some classes or different events that we're doing. We're not only doing the events like the, the, the Main Street Trick or Treating thing just so that we can meet the community. All that is the primary one. But there's also a sense of us being working together and us being partners together in these type of things. 
Not only were they partners that brought him joy, but they were partakers of grace. Did you see that in verse 7? It says, um, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart because you're all partakers with me of grace, okay? He says, you've, you've benefited from the grace of God. And so just by virtue of that alone, there should be a fellowship. There should be a joy that we have for one another. It, even though there's personality differences, even though there's background differences, even though there's all sorts of different interest levels, all those type of things, that are different, just by virtue of the fact that we are partakers of the grace of God should be something that then causes joy in the relationship. So this is one of the beautiful things about the Lord's Supper again, right? Okay, it's a symbol of people who are saying, I need God's grace. Okay, I need this. I'm a partaker of God's grace just like you are. So when you see other people at the table, you say, that's my tribe. Those are my people. Those are the people that they need the same thing that I need. Now, they may be totally different than you. They may have different backgrounds and different income brackets and different interest levels and different talents and different abilities. But at the table, it doesn't matter. We're all partakers of the same grace. And this is what brought Paul joy when he's thinking about it. He's sitting in his house arrest, and he's, he's, you know, at times chained to a guard or whatever like this. And and, and, he's, and he's, he's just right in there, and he's thinking. Every time he thought about the Philippians, he just smiled. He said, I thank them for us. You are partakers of grace. And grace was evident in their lives, and this is why he says, I'm sure of this in verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to a completion of the day of Jesus Christ. He says it's evident that grace is at work in life. Those are the type of people that bring the most joy. When the evidence of grace is in their life, when they're growing, it doesn't mean that they're perfect. It doesn't mean they never make mistakes. It doesn't mean that they always have it all together, but it means that they're growing. They're growing in grace. And when they do something wrong, they say, man, I'm sorry, I blew it. Would you, would you please forgive me for it? Those are the people that bring joy. Those are the people that when you pray for them, they bring a smile to your face. But it's the ones that harden their hearts. It's the ones that just isolate. Those are the ones that when you pray for them, as a pastor, there's tears. You see, this is what Paul was looking at the Philippian church. He said, you're, you're growing in grace, and, and, and you're partakers in grace, and you're partners in the gospel. This is joy, the joy of his prayer. I'm going to move through this pretty quickly as we can move on here. But the request of his prayer, what, what, what did he pray for them? We see this. As we look down here in verse 9, he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment. So he wanted their love, their love of what? Love for each other, of course, but love for God, right? He wanted their love to abound more and more, okay, with knowledge and discernment, okay, so that they could discern, right, so that they could approve what is, uh, uh, with all discernment, so they could approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. And so as he's praying for these people, he's praying for their spiritual growth. He's praying that they will love what God loves. He's praying that they will have discernment and be able to say, yes, this is good and healthy, and no, this is not good and healthy. He's saying that they will make good, wise decisions about how they live out the Christian life. These are ways. Don't you see, my friend? Don't you see, my church? This is a roadmap of how we pray for each other. Right here. This is how you pray for me. This is how I pray for you. This is how you pray for each other. Is that we will grow in love. Love for each other, but love for God, right? And if we love God, this is the first great commandment, right? The second is like unto it. Love your neighbor yourself. 
And then when we do that, we're going to serve the world. Love God, love people, serve the world. This is what we're saying here at our church, right? Okay, so the point is this. Is this is what Paul's saying. I want you to grow in your love so that when you have a greater love for God, you're going to be able to discern what is healthy and good for you, for the church, for the community, for the world. See, this is his prayer. He's praying that they will just grow for one another. So, you know, think about everyone else in this room right now. We'll just limit to here. All the church people that are here today. Do you pray for one another? Do do, do you pray these types of things for each other? Do you have joy with one another? I I don't know. if, If the answer to that is no, there's a whole host of reasons why that could be uh, the case. I don't know all of them, but none of them are good. I'll tell you that. And so those are things you, you I would encourage you, if when I asked that question, you said, no, I really don't. Here's what my, my, my homework assignment to you is. Spend time with God about that. And say, okay, God, what do I need to do different? What, what, what offense has someone done to me that I'm not willing to talk to him about, and that's causing the, the riff here? Or you know, what, what is the case here? Spend time about that. We've got to be a church that has this type of relationship. And this was Paul's prayer for this church. And this is my prayer. It's the elders' prayer for this church, that we would be a church that we discern what is good, what is healthy, and we abound in our love for God and for one another. Then that translates into how we serve one another. And it's all for the glory of God, right? It's all for verse 11 here, to the glory and the praise of God. That's why this is so important to us. And so, when you're praying for one another, do you pray with joy or with tears? And, and, and let me ask you this. When people pray for you, do you think they pray for you with joy or with tears? Be the person that this brings joy. You're a partner. You're a partaker in the grace. You're growing in grace. And you're, you're abounding in love. Those are the partners that bring joy. Okay, I told you that was Paul's prayer. There's two other points. We're going to clip through them. Secondly, his perspective. So we have Paul's prayer. We see this. This is the prayer for the love for those people here. But then he shows, starting verse 12, uh, all the way through about verse 26, we see this perspective here. Let me just read it quickly for you. At verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Pause. What he's talking about there is his imprisonment. Remember, I told you he's under house arrest, okay? They were concerned for him, just as you would be. If you had a friend that went into prison, you'd be concerned for this person, right? Okay? He says, okay, but I want you to know what has happened to me, his imprisonment under house arrest, has served to advance the gospel. Continue on in verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill, and the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of the Christ, Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed and that, by, and that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means 
fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Okay, here we see some perspective that Paul has for us. First of all, about this house arrest here that he has, this house arrest. He, he says really that it's really to advance the gospel. He says, uh, here's the reason why God had this happen to me, is so that the gospel would be advanced. I mean, he literally had a captive audience here, okay? He had people, it was the palace guard that was listening to him and hearing all the interactions. Probably when Epaphroditus came, the palace guard saw that because he could receive, we know from Acts 28, he could receive visitors, Paul could. And so when Epaphroditus came, um, the guard was there. The guard heard all the conversations. The guard heard the interactions of all those type of things. No doubt Paul had other conversations uh, throughout his, his house arrest there. And what Paul is reporting here is he says, listen, I want you to know, and he, he wrote this in the note that Epaphroditus was to take back to the Philippian church. He says, I want you to know, okay, I know you're concerned for me, but listen, God has used us. He has used us to advance the gospel. He has used this, so you've been concerned for me. I'm so appreciative of that, Philippians. I'm so grateful. But just know that God is using this to advance the gospel, right? He says not only that, he says not only the palace guard and, and all the rest that, that, is in, that was under uh, that was, uh, in his uh, um, earshot um, uh, were here in the gospel, but he says, and most of the brothers, verse 14, they were confident they were becoming more bold. So there was other Christians in Rome that were gaining encouragement from Paul as they were seeing how he was handling this. Now, not everyone was going to. Uh, we know that uh, there are uh, some, and we're, I'll explain this here in just a second, that were not happy with Paul. And Paul dealt with that in a different way, and he has his own perspective. But Paul, he's looking at a terrible situation, and he's, he's telling the flipping church, he says, listen, it is God's plan. So what really, here's what Paul was doing. You've heard the phrase before, you make lemonade out of lemons, right? Life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. No, no, no. What Paul is doing here, he's saying, it's not, I'm not making lemonade out of lemons. I'm telling you that lemonade was the plan all along. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not just coming up with something, taking a bad situation, and now I'm trying to make something good out of it. He's like, no, no, no. This was God's plan all along. You need to understand this, that these people are hearing the gospel, they're hearing the gospel. And again, I don't have time to turn there, but if you were, this is, this is the beauty again of Acts. If you go back to Acts chapter 8, I believe it is, when Paul is converted, he was known by Saul at the time there. No, it's not chapter 8, it's chapter 9. And so he has this, uh, this conversion experience there. Um, and so what he does is he goes through this, and, and he's told there, Ananias, a guy who restores his sight, he says that you will stand before kings, okay? Right? He's a chosen vessel. This is what the God was telling Ananias. He's a chosen vessel to stand before kings. I don't know if that word got back to Paul or not, but when it did or if it did, he probably had a different idea of how the imperial uh, host would hear about the gospel. He thought he'd probably be invited into the throne room or something like that, but no, no, no. It was in chains. But what he's saying here, he's saying, this is the plan all along. He says, just be encouraged, okay? His whole perspective about life was so much that it was like God is unfolding his plan and he's doing something, even if I don't like the circumstances, he's 
doing his plan. What a perspective. What a perspective to have. And then there's also a perspective about the other people here because we have here of a, a situation, a house arrest. We apparently there's this group of people here. We see this in verses 15 through 17. These group of people that they were they were they were preaching the gospel in a good way. So the message, or let me say, it wasn't a good way in, in a sense that the, the 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 message was was accurate, but the manner in which they were doing it was wrong. You see, most likely what happened is when Paul came to Rome. There's a lot of fanfare. So a lot of people were talking about Paul, talking about Paul, talking about Paul, maybe it was happening here. And probably what happened is there was a lot of church members of other local assemblies here, because Paul didn't start the church in Rome. We don't exactly know how that started, but um, there was these assemblies that were there. And most likely some of these church members, they were like, oh, let's talk about Paul, and let's go see, visit him maybe, and all this stuff. And so some local pastors, they were getting a little jealous of it. And so when their sermons, while they're preaching about Christ, they were kind of throwing some digs in about Paul here and there. So the message about Christ was true, but they were kind of throwing some digs in towards Paul, probably to try to keep the church people together there. And Paul gets wind of this, and instead of being upset by it, he says, listen, as long as Christ is proclaimed, I don't care. I don't care. As long as Christ is proclaimed and they're pointing them to Christ, what they, their beef with me, I don't care. That's a tough perspective to have. But Paul did it because he had a greater perspective, a greater perspective of what was most important in life. Most important in life wasn't about popularity, it wasn't about reputation, it wasn't about all those things. It was about, is Christ proclaimed? That is what's most important. And oh, what it would be if in our church that was the number one priority of all of us, that Christ is proclaimed. How different would our lives be? How different would my life be? And so we have this perspective, not just about his house arrest, but also about his death here. He talks about how he had this, this, um, this, this kind of desire to obviously go and be with Christ, and he, he would rather die, you know, to be absent by his presence with the Lord, right? And he says, you know, uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, verse 21. But he says, but I know that it's, it's better that I remain because I still have work to do and, and for your sake and for the believer's sake. And so he says, I'm willing to stay for the sake of the partners in the gospel. I mean, think about that. I mean, he wants to go with Christ. And I've had this feeling too. Listen, I mean, I don't know if you have or not, but there's been plenty of times where I've thought, you know, going to be with Jesus sounds really good about now, <laughs> you know, really good. I remember talking to my grandfather before he passed away, and, and of course, I was a young boy at the time, and, you know, I wanted to live my life, right? I wanted to experience all this stuff. I remember my grandfather just saying, Jeremy, being with Jesus will be far better. It'll just be far better. I didn't understand it at the time. I, I just thought that, you know, he was old and didn't understand life, you know, because that's what, you know, 13-year-olds think about older people. But he was so right. But at the same time, it's good to stay and fulfill our mission, serve Christ until he calls us home. Sometimes we want to escape just because we're so fed up with this world. I get that way. But then I read a text like this, and I say, you know what, though? I need to stay and be a partner in the gospel. Until God calls me home, I'm a partner in the gospel. So I, it doesn't matter how old you are here today. You still have, you still have work to do. You say, oh, thanks, Jeremy. 
You know, I want to be retired. I know, I know. But you're a partner in the gospel. And you can, you can push and pray and pull and, and encourage one another. Partner in the gospel. This is what Paul says. My perspective about death is that I want to die and be with Christ. So it's be far better. But I'm going to stay. So I guess, I guess the question, the application question at this point is what drives you? What drives us? Is it all spiritually related? Is it about advancing the gospel? I mean, we have these different events and we have things like this. Is it about, yes, this is what we need to do. We need to do it because the gospel is going to go forward. I mean, the conversations that you have with your, your, your relationships that no one else has, right? You know, everyone here has a unique set of connections here. And, um, you know, those are the things. Those are the relationships that, you know, are you advancing the gospel? Are you being a fragrance of Christ in those relationships? Yeah, those are the questions that we need to wrestle with here. Do we desire to be with our partners in Christ? Is this an earnest desire of us to be with one another, encourage one another? It's more than just a gathering like this. It's like small groups and getting together, for having each other over for dinner and, and connecting with one another and going out for lunch afterwards or something like this. Those are the things that just build relationships. If we just come in and boom, go, come in and go, we're not building the partnerships that, that you need and that this church needs, okay? So this is what drove Paul. One last point, and then I'll, I'll, I'll wrap it up here. Paul's plea here, Paul's plea. So we looked at his prayer, his uh, priority. Now his plea, for the last three verses, only let your conversation, I'm reading verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have." He says this, here's, here's my, my, my plea, is that you live up to your name. That's what he's saying there when he says, you know, let your life, your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, stand firm in your spirit. Work side by side. Don't be afraid. Be bold. Do not fear is what he's saying there. He says, this is my, my plea. My plea is that you, 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 you work hard. You strive side by side for the face of the gospel, for the faith of the gospel. He says, live up to your name. Let your life be worthy of Christ. You are called a Christian, a little Christ. Christian just means little Christ. He says, listen, you are a Christian. Live up to that name. Have the partnership. Have the, the, uh, the, the uh, be partakers of grace. Say, grow in grace with one another. Push one another. Stand firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is one of the things that is beautiful about a church is when we can see multiple generations striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so be intentional about those relationships. Be, you know, seek those out. Encourage those. Parents, encourage those for your children. One of the things I love is if we ever have a work day here or something like this, I, I love it when my kids are working side by side with other adults. I remember when we were doing the audio upgrade here, you know, my son was over here and all these registers were off the wall because we were running uh, cables underneath there, you know, little, there's cables under there if you didn't know that. So there's cables under there and so we had all that off and he was running that and uh, Paul Detweiler was, 
was working with Isaiah. They were going up and down there and just working together. And, you know, as a, as a dad, that meant a lot to me. To see another guy in the church working with my son. You know, they were talking about all sorts of things, talking about stuff. And it was really good. I love to see that. I love to see with other kids. I love to see adults in the church, like it was our water program, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Just make sure that you're doing that. In our teen ministry, I love to see the leaders that we have striving side by side for the faith of the gospel with other believers, younger than them, but other believers. That, that, that's what we need to do. So who are you striving side by side with? Who are you striving side by side with? This is, this is the plea of Paul. I wish I could you know, camp on that a little bit longer, but time has escaped me. So he also says, lastly, remember your calling. He says, I don't know if you saw this, this is like, you know, I bet Paul, well, he, probably, he probably was grinning when he wrote this. I, I can't prove it. I don't know. It's for sure. This is me just thinking this. I can just imagine this. Paul is writing this, like, he probably just laughed. He says, okay, verse 29, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted. It's been granted to you, okay? You get this. And he says the same things that you're hearing about me and the people who are speaking bad about me and stuff, he's like, that's going to happen to you. That's going to happen to you. So that's been granted to you. He says, not only has your faith been granted to you, but also suffering has been. He says, but just remember your calling. Don't be surprised by it. Don't get derailed by it. That's what he's saying here. It sounds like such negative news, but he's just talked about the joy that comes in serving to one another, and part of that is when you go through difficult times together. When you go through a difficult time with someone, that's how partnerships are forged. The deepest relationships are forged often when you go through a difficult time with one another. This was his plea. Remember your calling. Remember your calling. And I see this here. You know, we have multiple years of, of Christian experience present in the room here, and you think of people who have gone through difficult things together, walked through difficult times. And there's a friendship there because of that. There's a partnership, if you will, forge those things. But when we isolate ourselves and we don't want to talk about those things, let me just tell you, and that, that's, we're not having the partnerships. If we're going through a difficult time and we're not letting anyone in on that, there's no partnership being built here. And so this is why his plea is, Build these relationships. Build these partnerships. So we all have the opportunity to serve alongside each other. We could talk more about that, but let me just summarize it with this. Gospel partners pray for and push each other to prioritize the gospel in their lives. If you were to say, okay, how would you summarize the chapter? I'd say, well, there's a lot of ways you could do it, but here's what I would say. is gospel partners pray for and push each other to prioritize the gospel in their lives. That's my sincere prayer for our church that we push each other to prioritize gospel living in each other's lives. 